Uh, Today we're looking at the first letter of John. It's been a few months since last we were here in John, but if you recall, the apostle John is writing um, to this church because there has been a break, a schism in the church, a chunk of the church have left. And into the midst of the heartache, the loss, the confusion, uh, the apostle John is writing this letter that the church may know joy and that they may be assured of what they believe and in whom they believe. If you are in that church that has remained, the question that persists, the question on which it's impossible not to dwell, is how do, how do I know that I'm not the wackadoo? How do I know that I'm not crazy? How do I know that I'm not believing insane things? How do I know that I'm actually believing the truth and not them? So this far in the letter, John has laid out some tests, if you will, for how the church can know that they are the church, that what they believe is really real. John says you can know because you have fellowship with God himself, with both the Father and with the Son. You can know if you are walking in the light. You can know if you are keeping Christ's commandments. You can know You are the church, that you are believing true things if you are loving your brother. You can know because the Holy Spirit is abiding in you. We'll see that John revisits many of these themes throughout this letter. But the reason that he revisits them is not because he's a senile old man, but because the church is filled with fraught and fickle people. They hear an assurance, you are in fellowship with God. And as quickly as they hear it and believe it, They are caught up in the sticky mire of doubt and anxiety. Is that not our struggle too? Isn't it all too easy to forget to believe tomorrow what we believe today? To doubt the certainty that we had yesterday? I know that I am fickle and fraught, and I think you can too. This letter is for us. These words of assurance and reminder have much for us to ponder and consider. And so as we begin to consider these verses this morning, I want, to bring, I want you to bring to mind the best person that you know. Who is the most good person, the most overwhelmingly awesome person that you know? Or perhaps it's not someone you know, but someone that comes to mind, someone that is just simply holy good. What would you do if today you were to have lunch with them? What would your response be? I think if you're honest, I think that many of you would be a bit bashful, a bit disconcerted, a bit reticent to go have lunch with this most good person. You might want to go change your clothes, put on something a bit nicer. Perhaps you would ask if you could leave your kids at home because they really aren't presentable today or any other day, really. Perhaps you might ask for a few more days or a few more weeks or a few more years to get your things in order, to get your personality in order, to get your job in order, to get your finances in order. You want to really be able to tell that really good person that you are really awesome, really great, really good yourself too. What if you found out that today, Jesus, the Son of God, is coming back? 
that you are going to be standing face to face with Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the righteous who died for sinners, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, whose face shows the very glory of God. What would you do right now if you found out that you were meeting Jesus today? Again, I think if you're honest, I think many of you would start a catalog of all the recent reasons why you're worth it, why you're accomplished. I went to church this morning. I looked at my Bible today. I didn't yell at my kids today, at least not too much. I thought really hard about talking to the homeless guy I saw. I've not done anything really bad. I've not killed anyone. I'm not a murderer. Friends, how would you approach Jesus today? Would you approach him anxiously, fearfully, shamefully, or would you approach him confidently? Today in our passage, the elder apostle John has an incredible reminder for us, an incredible word for why we can boldly and confidently approach the throne of God. In a few words, because we are children of God. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, I'd love for you to follow along this morning because we're going to look closely at the words in our passage here. In verse 28, John sets out the thesis that we were just considering. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus is coming. His return is not an if, but a when. And there will be a day when you, all of you will stand before him. And John, the father of the church, reassures this church and us that we can have confidence now, right now, today, in standing before Jesus. How can we have that confidence? We begin to get a clue in verse 29. If you know that he, that is Jesus, if you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, this statement might seem like a bit of a non sequitur between verse 28 and verse 29, but then what follows in the next couple verses, um, but uh, this verse is setting up the dichotomy that we need to see so that John will, can draw it out later in chapter 3. And we'll visit, revisit this particular verse uh, when we are next in John. But we begin to see here the grounds on which we can plant our assurance. Who can stand before Christ confidently? One who practices righteousness. And who practices righteousness? One who is righteous. And who is righteous? One who is born of Christ. Rebirth in Christ. This is the crux of the matter. So follow with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The first word, see, is translated as behold in the King James Version. And I think that better conveys the idea here. John's careful argument is suddenly interrupted as John himself is caught up in the rapture of this idea. See, John says, look, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. The early church historian Eusebius tells a story of this apostle, John, the John who wrote this letter that we're considering. 
There was a young man that John had taken under his wing and had cared for him and discipled him and taught him about Jesus and of growing in Christ's likeness. And John had to travel, and so he left the young man in the care of a local bishop while he was traveling. And as he was traveling, the young man began to fall back into some sinful ways, returns to a life of mischief and crime, and eventually returns to a band of robbers, and eventually becomes a bold bandit chief, the most violent, most bloody, most cruel of them all. When John returns from his travels and inquires about the young man with the bishop, the bishop replies, he is dead. He is dead to God for he turned wicked and abandoned and at last a robber. But the apostle rent his clothes and beat his head with great lamentation. So John borrows a horse and rides up into the mountains in order that he might be captured by this band of robbers. And as he is captured, he demands to be taken to the leader because he knows that this young man is there. And so Eusebius writes, the young man was waiting, armed as he was. But when he recognized John, our apostle, approaching, he turned in shame to flee. But John, forgetting his age, pursued him with all his might, crying out, Why, my son, dost thou flee from me? Thine own father, unarmed, aged, pity me, my son. Fear not, thou hast still hope in life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will in willingly endure thy death, as the Lord suffered death for me. For thee I will give my life. Stand, believe, Christ has sent me. And the young man, when he heard, first stopped and looked down, then threw away his arms and then trembled and wept bitterly, baptizing himself a second time with tears. I love that story. I love how we can see how John is so overcome by God's love, so overcome that this old man, this sagacious, wise apostle, hikes up his robe and chases after this young bandit. There is still hope for you. And here in our passage, this interlude in John's argument, we see John's heart, his love for God breaking out. He's showing how he himself is overwhelmed by God's love and how that changes everything. That's what roots everything. That's what grounds everything. Behold, look, see what kind of love the Father has given us. How often Friends, do you behold something? When is the last time that you sat and beheld? When is the last time you were caught up in observation or consideration of something? In our fast-paced, time-obsessed age, beholding, I think, is a rare pastime. An activity like bird watching or coin collecting, and coin collecting is reserved for retirement or when we have time. Today, John is asking each of us to behold the love that God has extended to you and to I. That's our task today. So like a jeweler gazing at the many facets of a diamond, behold God's love, admire it, consider it, relish it, delight in it, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. I want to look more closely at this verse because there's a great deal of emotion that I think is lost in our translation. John is not simply writing these words. As one commentator puts it, John is emoting these words. I want you to feel these words as much as John felt them as he was writing. What is translated after behold is what kind of love is sometimes translated how great. 
what the literal words are are an idiom. Literally, behold, from what country is the love that the Father has given to us? Where in the world did God's love come from? How foreign to us is God's love? How miraculous, how inconceivable, how strange is God's love? Behold this miraculous love. How do you behold something that is inconceivable? How do you behold this love? Next part is, it is a love that is given to us. Again, our benign translation misses out on the great unction. The Father has not merely given us this great love. He has bestowed, bequeathed, he has lavished his love upon us. Behold, says John, look, see how miraculous, how inconceivable, how foreign is the love of the Father that he has bestowed, that he has lavished on us. Do you begin to see, do you begin to feel John's compulsion to write these words? Perhaps you see that John feels deeply. Perhaps you think Josh feels deeply but perhaps you don't feel the gravity of these words. Look then at the, who is the object of God's love. Behold how great the, father, the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We're not merely called children of God a title that may be put on and taken off, a name that may be given and rescinded, a position that may be earned and lost. And so we are children of God. John cannot emphasize it enough. God's love was so lavished upon us that we have actually become children of God. Paul says similarly in Romans that we have been adopted as sons of God. But whereas adoption is primarily a legal status, a legal declaration, an incredible, miraculous, spectacular, inconceivable status nonetheless, but John's description is one of biology. John writes in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. There is a transformation in becoming children of God that we are not merely called children of God. We are children of God. There's an organic relationship between us and God. The Apostle Peter describes the children of God as, become, as having become partakers of the divine nature. John records Jesus' teaching of the vine and the branch, and I think this similarly conveys the biological understanding of becoming children of God. The very sustenance of the vine flows into the branches. That of which the vine is made, so too is the branches. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, says that John emphasizes this internal, vital, organic aspect of the relationship and therefore is reminding us that we who are truly Christians are sharers of the very life of God. When we are born again, we are truly, we are made children of God. The very spiritual DNA is rewritten that we become partakers of the divine nature. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Behold, beloved how great the love the Father lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and so we are. 
What does it mean to be a child of God? What more can we say about the change that has taken place? John has a few additional thoughts. First, children of God are unfamiliar to the world. Continuing in verse 1, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Christ. The transformation that has taken place in the child of God is something that is unrecognizable to the world. We looked at this very idea last week in 2 Kings and the story of Elisha. Our very way of being in the world is transformed. Our motivations, our means, our levers of power and movement, our peace in the face of vast anger and opposition, our confidence in the face of insurmountable odds, our capacity to love in the face of evil and violence, our whole mode of being in this world is utterly transformed when the Lord opens our eyes, when we are radically changed into children of God so radically changed that the world cannot help but see our way of being and wonder, what fools? Or as Luke brought out, as Paul taught, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ's resurrection were but a fantasy, how foolish we would look. If our hope in redemption were but wishful thinking, then the world would be right to laugh at us. But friends, our God in heaven has lavished his love upon us that we might become children of God. Those who are children of God were predestined by God to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we, might be, we may be the firstborn among many brothers. If the children of God are grafted into the family of God and conformed to the image of Christ, it is no wonder that the world does not know us for the world to not know Christ. But perhaps this is a foreign feeling do you feel yourself to be a child of God? How can I be conforming to Christ's likeness if I keep enjoying that thing, those things, those sinful pet little things so much? How can I see myself as a child of God if it just feels so good to do this thing, those things? We are a sinful, jealous, angry, vile, crass, prejudicial, mean, immoral, idolatrous, and hypocritical people. And we are supposed to imagine that we are the children of God. Beloved, we are God's children now. John reiterates what he has already said. I meant what I said. God's love has been lavished upon us already so that we are already engrafted into God's family. We are now the children of God. And yet, continuing in verse two, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is that tension of the now and the not yet. Do you feel that, brothers and sisters? We are children of God now, but there is also a not yet. A very real, a very important aspect in which we are not yet fully redeemed until what a full child of God will be. 
this imperfection, this inability to live up to the title and status of a child of God is a persistent reality, one that will not be dissipated until we are face to face with Christ himself in all his glory. We are called, we are made children of God now to enable us to live in righteousness. We are now children of God to remind us and call us back to the standard of righteousness. We are children of God now so that we may live and grow in Christ's likeness. But we are not yet fully children of God. We are not what we will be. And this serving as a reminder to hope that in that blessed day to come, when we fall so short of the standard of perfection, we are called to remember the not yet. To see that the trajectory of our life is toward that not yet. Like John chasing down the young bandit, we are called to remember that though we may not live anywhere close to the standard of righteousness, Christ died for you and for me that we might be made right with God, that we might be called children of God right now in order by our progressive sanctification that one day we will be made new, made whole. But that day is not yet. What more can we say about that not yet? I think there's many things that we can say and yet there's so very little that words can actually express. We know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, writes John. To see Christ as he is. Christ in whose face is all the glory of God. The God who said that to Moses that for Moses to see God's glory would kill him. Moses could see but the barest glimpse of the back of the passing of the glory of God. And still Moses' face was so radiant that the Israelites could not behold it. He had to put a veil over it. Christ, who is so glorious that Paul fell down blind on the Damascus road with but a vision of that glory. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon helps to add some words to this ineffable moment of the not yet. Consider that we shall not see him abased in his incarnation, but exalted in his glory. We are not to see the infant of a span long. We are not to admire the youthful boy. We are not to address the incipient man. We are not to pity the man wiping the hot sweat from his burning brow. We are not to behold him shivering in the midnight air. We are not to behold him subject to pains and weaknesses and sorrows and infirmities like ours. We are not to see the eye wearied by sleep. We are not to behold hands tied in labor. We are not to behold feet bleeding with arduous journeys too long for their strength. We are not to see him with his soul distressed. We are not to behold him abased and sorrowful. Oh, the sight is better still. We are to see him exalted. We shall see the head, but not with its thorny crown. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. We shall see the hand and the nail prints too, but not the nail. It has been once drawn out and forever. We shall see his side and its pierced wound too, but the blood shall not issue from it. We shall see him not with a peasant's garb around him, but with the empire of the universe upon his shoulders. We shall see him not with a reed in his hand, but grasping a golden scepter. We shall see him not as mocked and spit upon and insulted, not bone of our bone in all our agonies, afflictions, and distresses, but we shall see him exalted. 
No longer Christ the man of sorrows, the acquaintance of grief, but Christ the man God, radiant with splendor, effulgent with light, clothed with rainbows, girded with clouds, wrapped in lightnings, crowned with stars, the sun beneath his feet. Oh, the glorious vision. How can we guess what he is, what words can tell us, or how can we speak thereof? Yet whate'er he is, with all his splendor unveiled, all his glories unclouded, and himself unclothed, we shall see him as he is. We shall see Christ as he is. And John has the audacity to say that not only will we see Christ as he is, but we will be like him. How incredible, how incomprehensible. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Take heart, my friends. Be assured you are now a child of God, but one day you will stand before Christ in all his glorious splendor, and you will be made new. All aches and pains, all inconsistencies and hypocrisies, all shortcomings and failings will be wiped away in the fully completed work of being a child of God. What more is there to say? Perhaps a few more things. John continues in verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John, who is so enraptured and caught up in the magnificent of God's lavish love, John demonstrates proper theology for us. Where do we go from this glorious image of Christ, seeing him as he is, this beatific vision? We put our hope in him, and we go back to the daily, hourly, minutely work of purifying ourselves, of putting on holiness and righteousness of Christ. There is no room for being so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. A proper and good understanding of the glory of the not yet drives us back to the now, filling us with hope and expectation for that future day of fulfillment, giving us strength and the capacity to do the hard work of mortifying our sin now, putting to death all those things that would keep us from living fully in the grace and power of God, of purifying ourselves that we may be pure like Christ. Second, John grounds our work of purification in the work of Christ that has already been completed for us. Everyone who thus hopes in him, in Christ. We hope in Christ, in seeing him face to face, in being a fully completed child of God, and this is the hope that moves our action. We do not purify ourselves in the hope that we will maybe possibly be just good enough to maybe eke ourselves into a distant relation of God's family. We don't strive to make ourselves holy in order that Christ may possibly, maybe deign to look upon us. There is nothing we can do to earn that place. As John writes in his gospel, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will or of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are already children of God now. 
And so we look ahead in expectation of the day of full redemption and restoration. Knowing that we are fully grafted into the family of God by Christ. And we put our head down and we get to the work of making ourselves pure and holy. There's so much more to consider in these few verses, but as the diamond has ever more facets to behold, I hope that today there are at least these few facets that we have considered uh, will fill you and move you and stir you as John was filled and moved and stirred. May we walk out of here beholding how great the love the Father has lavished on us, has given to us that we should be children of God. And so we are. Behold, behold it, friends. Behold this wonderful, glorious mystery. In the 1980s series, Cosmos, Carl Sagan opens with the consideration of our insignificance. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stirs us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of, a, of falling from a great height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. The size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding. Lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home, the earth. How insignificant are you and I in the grand scheme of things? Little me, little you, on this little rock, in this tiny corner of this massive galaxy, in this tiny tiny little fraction of a second that stretches from the beginning of creation to the end of time. Who am I in the face of that? Who are you? Beloved, we are God's children. God, who by the word of his mouth set the stars in their place, who numbers and names each of these stars, who by his very word upholds and sustains all the universe in his place. God, who came to this very earth to put on the flesh that you and I wear, to live the lives, endure the pains and agonies of human life, suffer and die the death that we deserve, drinking the cup of judgment to which we are entitled, and ultimately defeating death to be seated in glory and splendor at the right hand of the Father, in order that you and I could be reconciled to him. He came here to our tiny little speck of the universe to make us children of God. How incomprehensible and insignificant are we? And yet God chose you, elected you, redeemed you, that you might be a child of God. Behold it, my friend. Behold how great the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. How do we respond to that? What can we do with that? We can but sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let's pray. God, would you make that our story? Would you fill us with wonder 
and excitement and awe at how you have lavished your love upon us. That through Christ you have brought us to yourself that we might be made children of you. God, on this Father's Day, as we think of good fathers and bad fathers, we are reminded that you are the perfect father and you have invited us to be a part of your family. God, allow us to behold how magnificent, how glorious the love that you have lavished upon us, that you have called us, that you have made us children of you. Allow us to behold it. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.